Today's interview is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck's income-focused ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. It's the morning of Friday, April 14th. Big banks just reported their earnings. Citigroup, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan. It's a month after uh, the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, and we are joined by a banking expert, Chris Whalen of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, great to have you back. How have you been and what did we learn from today's uh, reporting? Well, everything's great, thank you. The trading floor is busy on a Friday, which is always a good sign. Um, I think what we've learned from earnings is that the adjustment in terms of funding costs is continuing. I think it's fascinating to see Jamie Dimon record quarter he is uh, rightly proud of what they've done. But their net interest income doubled over the last year. Their funding costs went up tenfold. Okay, so you add a zero. So that illustrates what's going on with the banks. Banks are making more money because rates are up. They are still lending, although I think it's going to slow down this year. But funding costs are just galloping long. And you see this not just because people are moving in the time deposits and asking for payment, you see structural changes occurring in this market where banks haven't had to pay interest on business accounts for 10 years. Now all of a sudden the customers are asking. If they stay and you pay them, good. Otherwise they're gonna leave and take 4% in T-bills for 90 days, right? So that's what the banks are still competing against. And the Fed has dealt with the short-term problem that was caused after Silicon Valley but the basic economic disparity, which is banks can't make 4% pretty much anywhere on their platform right now, net of expenses and funding. They're working for one. So think about it today, the average spread for a big bank like JP's, you know, more or less about 5% gross. Then you subtract eh, three quarters of a point in funding costs, another two points in SG&A, your back your overhead, what's left? That's what you're working for today at a bank. Meanwhile, you can buy T-bills for 4%. So that's the competition in the market right now, Jack. Chris, you taught me a lot of what I know about banking. You taught me well. It's about the spread. The spread between what banks make on their loans and what they pay for deposits. And that spread was very low uh, during 2020 and 2021 uh, because of quantitative easing. And they could get money basically for free, but they weren't making a lot of money too. So the spread has actually widened. And uh, right. looking at JP Morgan's earnings today, it, there, there's a lot to like in that, yes, they're paying more for deposits, but they're making even more on loans and that spread uh, is, is wide. Because humans set those spreads. You know, it's funny, Steve Leesman this morning uh, asked me that question. He said, why is the spread between the 10-year treasury and mortgage rates so wide? And I said, well, it's because it can be. <laughs> lenders are trying to make money. This is not an auction, right? This is a, a gallery sale. So, you know, lenders set coupons of loans. They then have to decide how they're going to sell those loans into the capital markets. So there's two hops to the story. Lenders are going to actually have a pretty good month because the 10-year has fallen. So those loans that they made early in the month are going to be worth more when they sell them into an MBS. It's just like a bond. You know, think of your mortgage just like a treasury bond. It has a coupon. A coupon is worth something in the market. So today, you know, the lenders are doing good, but on the short end of the curve, the cost of funds for every kind of secured finance, auto loans, whatever, is much higher. 
And that's going to be slowing down the economy. That's how the Fed essentially makes the economy create fewer jobs, less market activity is short-term rates. Right, Chris. And I want to ask you about that. You know, folks like myself who aren't in the business, but they they track what is officially shared. And there is the credit spreads, there's the, the bond rates, and that's all good and fine. And we're not seeing a lot of distress there necessarily. Although in the short term, you know, one month treasury world, things are going a little haywire. But uh, in the actual banking world, there are things I feel like I don't see and most people don't see that that you see, which is what are banks actually getting to charge for loans? Like in the shadow banking system, when banks want to sell loans, you know, uh, are they being sold at, at severe discounts? I mean, you know, every now and then I'll see someone, a uh, hedge fund manager, distressed debt manager saying that they're buying loans that yield 15%. And yeah. that seems like a pretty big sign of distress to me. Yes. Well, so if you're talking about, say, multifamily loans, the, the stuff that Signature Bank couldn't sell to uh, the folks at New York Community Bank, those loans are going to go at a discount, in my view. Uh, they have a lot of issues. They have the New York State Legislature, which has basically crippled the multifamily real estate market in New York State. So we have a lot of things to deal with before those assets are going to be valuable. On the other hand, if you look at, say, the, the loan market for big loans, things you can't sell into the agency market because of size, they're still very well bid. There are a lot of banks out there trying to buy those loans or investors who want to buy those loans. So I think you have to be careful not to paint with a roller and say, well, all of credit is bad. No, you have some very hot spots in commercial real estate, which are not going to, then you have other spots that are great. You know, look at Texas, look at uh, the entire Southern tier. Uh, they don't have the same kind of distressed issues as New York and Chicago and San Francisco. So I think Banks have a lot of commercial real estate exposure. Don't get me wrong. That's going to be the headline this year, not residential markets. The headline's going to come from commercial exposures, restructuring the you know legacy cities, particularly New York City, obviously. And I think that's going to be where you hear about uh, investors buying loans at a discount. But the 15% is a pretty big distress spread. Yes. What is a bigger headwind, Chris, this year for banks? Uh, deposits, outflows, cost of deposits, duration risk on the asset side, or commercial real estate credit risk? Well, let's go down the list. The duration risk is basically a function of where the 10-year is. So if the 10-year is closer to three than the four, the number is going to be better. It's going to be smaller. So whereas in the third quarter, you're available for sale book and your health and maturity securities were probably a trillion dollars underwater, this quarter is going to be half of that. That's not a great number, but it's okay. It's not as bad as, as people were worried about. The more profound question, though, goes back to your thought about those distressed assets. If you have loans that were made in 20 and 21 that have coupons of 3 and 4%, you're underwater. Uh, most bond investors, most you know, funds, for example, can't justify owning an asset like that unless they buy it at an extremely low uh, price, a very steep discount. So I think in those cases, the cash flow is what's coming at us. This is going to be a second quarter, third quarter story. And I think if the bond is close to 3%, a lot of banks are going to take the pain and sell, Jack. They're just going to mm -hmm. kick this stuff out, take the knuckles, you know, maybe a 10-point, 12-point loss on, say, a GMA 2. Uh, but you know what? If you can go out and reinvest at 6%, that's a good trade. And the banks that have capital, have strong earnings, are going to do that trade. 
the rest of it, I think, you know, it's going to be uh, case by case, I hate to say. Some banks, if you look at PNC this morning, came through very nicely. Not much volatility in the balance sheet. Uh, other banks are not going to be as lucky. You know, First Republic is still trading at 10, 10 cents on the dollar of book value. They may get bought. Somebody may just take it off the table. But I think you'll see more consolidation as we push the liquidity out of the market. Credit costs are going to come back. And you're still going to have an issue about fund. But the banks are going to try and deal with it as they can. So, you know, I think credit will be the story by the end of the year. That'll be the predominant story for banks. The return of credit risk. What did you see today, not on the cost of deposits, but on the absolute level of deposits? I, I noticed JP Morgan, their deposits actually increased quarter over quarter, the first time uh, since the first quarter of 2022. Is that a good sign or people have faith in the banks? Or is that everyone is withdrawing money from regional banks and parking it you know, with Jamie Dimon? So actually, it's, it's good for the, the big guys, but to the regional banks, uh, uh, it's a struggle. In other words, the better the deposits look for uh, the large banks, the worse it will be for the regionals. Perhaps. But again, I would say it's a case-by-case kind of analysis. You can't just say, well, all small banks are in trouble, because it's not true. There are a lot of small banks that have very, very strong uh, relationships with their business customers, which is what matters. And um, they're going to get through fun, but they're going to have to pay for the money. That's the big caveat. So as we shrink excess reserves from the system, as the Fed eventually has to start selling securities from their portfolio to hit their own benchmarks for runoff, then I think you're going to see this whole issue change and you're going to see the banks much more focused on credit. And you're going to see a lot of commercial restructurings, buildings, you know, what have you. And the commercial side is going to lead this discussion as opposed to 10 years ago when residential mortgages were the big deal. It's going to be a different conversation this time. Yes. And uh, I'm noticing Wells uh, put aside $643 million for uh, bad loans. And you know, that sounds like a large number, but com- compared to the size of Wells Fargo, it may not necessarily be large. Uh, what are you seeing there? It's just a, a gradual build. The numbers for defaults are still very low. Yeah. Uh, historic lows. And they have normalized for multifamily and for autos and credit cards. They haven't normalized yet for one to four family mortgages, and that's going to probably take most of the year. I, I, I think the way I would put it is the individual banks are going to have to make some decisions about a lot of things on their books that looked fine two years ago, but may not look fine now. Now, you know, Jamie could get his bank down to $2 trillion tomorrow instead of being close to three. He would do it because he'd have higher equity returns. So these, these big banks are not really making that much money. They do better small. Jamie uh, Morgan's making a fair chunk of change. Well, they are. The top line number is great, but just watch the funding costs because that's going to catch them. And then the next thing is going to be that that provisions expense is going to get larger over time. As charge-offs grow, the regulators are going to make them build credit reserves. And the assumption we have a recession, maybe a shallow, whatever, um, watch City. You know, City, because they're a subprime lender, they're your bellwet. Watch Capital One. If you watch those two, it'll tell you what's going on because they have a higher default rate. They have a lower quality customer, if you will. And the assumption is that they're going to get more defaults on that book. That's why they charge more. You know, the gross spread at cities in the teens. 
the growth spread at J.P. Morgan is six. <laughs> right, Dif- different business. Yeah, and that's how a bank ac- accounting works: is banks take the losses before they actually happen. Before people stop paying on their loans, banks are well supposed to build for those losses. And that's why they took all these losses that were really paper losses in March of 2020, April 2020, that then when people actually paid back their loans, it was a huge uh, you know, money coming out of the credit reserve that's basically making money. And you know, that's why, Chris, uh, the, the financial system, the way banks make money, because it is all based on assumptions, it kind of, it kind of seems to me a, a little funny, I should say, when people say JP Morgan's revenue is, is uh, you know, up. 48% or 20, 20%. It, it's not as right. if, oh, we're selling 100 cans of Coke and we sold 120 this year, so it's up 20%. It's it's based on all these assumptions, you know? Uh, that's right. It's what we think revenue is, subject yeah. to revision. And, and, and you know, look, uh, I'll give you an example why they do this. Let's say you're a business customer and you're 60 days behind on your line of credit. Uh, but you get things together, you catch up, and the next month you're current again. They don't want to necessarily charge that loan off because you were 60 days behind. There may be some reason why you were behind. That's why you have a bank, right? So the banker works with you, gets you back on track, no fuss, no muss, off you go. Now, if they have a default where there's no security, let's say it's an unsecured loan, 90 days plus, no payments, they charge it off. They write the whole thing off. If they get a recovery subsequently, great. It's just found money, right? Uh-huh. If, you, if you have a secured loan, what they normally do, say mortgage, they'll write it down to fair value. They'll say, what's this house worth if I have to foreclose? What am I likely to get as a recovery on the loan? And then they'll charge off part of it against the provisions you were talking about. That's what the loss is for. But they make it a full recovery. You know? You know now. So it could take years between when the customer goes delinquent and when they finally resolve the asset and that's why you have all this funny accounting that kind of estimates loss, kind of estimates revenue, but subject to revision. But so Capital yeah. One, you said they are city, they're in a position to uh, be the first to see credit losses because they, they lend more subprime, so higher rates. What's interesting to me, Chris, is that those are the institutions actually that do the best in the crisis that we had a, a, the month ago of a duration crisis because you know that's first right. republic was making mortgages at three percent and if, if you if you lend if you're a credit card company that you know, lends at 20 percent you don't care if the interest rate went from zero to four percent no and you manage your book in a very different way yes. you, because if you're in the credit card business you're funding those liabilities with market deposits you can use broker deposits at city to fund your credit card book because the spread is 15, 16, 17%. So you have plenty of room. Same thing with Capital One. Mm-hmm. So even though it may seem silly to use that expensive deposit as opposed to, say, a core deposit, checking account, which is still less than 1% today, it gives them more flexibility because that book can come and go. You can sell assets. You can buy assets. So the credit card business is a very much capital markets mark-to-market every day kind of business. Uh, it's not like the lending business at, say, Bank of America, where they keep 30-year mortgages forever. They literally make the mortgage and just stick it in the portfolio and keep it. No hedging, by the way. Why? Um, so, you know, that's a very different world from a bank that has to be cognizant of market rates. And even the Goldman's, Morgan Stanley's, City, 
to some degree. They all have to borrow money in the marketplace every day. And that's a very different discipline. It's more like a broker-dealer to the bank. Thanks. Chris, I want to put a pin in the, the hedging comment because I definitely want to ask, ask you about that. But I just want to make a comment that a little over a month ago, it was like today, a Friday, the Silicon Valley Bank fell. Two days later, Signature Bank was taken over on a Sunday. At the same time, the Fed rolled out the, the BTFP. On that Friday, Chris, you, like many in the markets, were quite agitated and you had a lot of concerns about the health of the banking system. Today, now that the you know, big banks reported earnings that, uh, at least on the face of them, appear quite good, you are much more measured and maybe perhaps less concerned. Uh, is that accurate to say? And if so, why? What has happened over the past four or five weeks that makes you say, hmm, maybe this crisis we're in, uh, maybe it's not as, it's still bad, but not as bad as I thought it was? Mm -hmm. I think the, the concern a couple of weeks ago was surprise. Uh, when people are surprised and a default event occurs that they did not anticipate, then it has ripple effects throughout the market. So I think a lot of people were rightly concerned when we saw two banks go down in less than two weeks. And in both cases, uh, FDIC clearly had no warning. They couldn't even get a sale process underway. Um, so that is a concern. We do not need to see that. And it's frankly a pretty severe indictment of the Fed because the whole point of going big and providing massive amounts of liquidity to the market was to avoid precisely these sorts of problems. So today, am I calmer? Yes, the Fed threw more money at it and we calmed down the problem for the time being, but it doesn't change the fact that quantitative easing and now quantitative tightening, as we call them, um, has put a lot of unnecessary stress on the system. And there's a disconnect between what the Fed governors are saying about inflation and what we can see in the market. Now, let me give you an example. At the end of the third quarter, the banking system's dependence on what we call non-core funding, hot money, uh, doubled in a single quarter. And yet at the same time, lending didn't grow. There wasn't much going on. It was a fairly pedestrian quarter. The Fed missed this. This was a real flashing red light that said, hey, you have a problem. Your banks, your 132 largest banks in the country, were all looking for hot money. Why do you suppose that is? It's because of what we're talking about, Jack. There's a structural change going on in the markets, and that still worries me. That tells me that we could have more bank failures ahead, and it will be the outliers that fit, not the mainstream banks. It's going to be the ones that have a business model, which for some reason or another, is not going to do well in an environment where we're taking reserves out of the system. And keep in mind, the folks at the Fed don't know how to calibrate this process. They don't know, what, you know, if a 1% move in Fed funds is equal to X amount of market runoff, okay? They, they guess about these things, and these are dangerous things to guess about. After last year's interest rate surge, income has made a comeback, and VanEck has the ETFs to help bring income to your portfolio. You can check out VanEck's wide range of income-focused ETFs using their Income Investing Yield Monitor, where you can search by yield, duration, and expense to find the ETF that fits your needs. With the Yield Monitor, you can effortlessly track monthly fixed income ETF category flows, yields, total returns, and more. To access VanEck's Income Investing Yield Monitor, go to vanek.com slash forward guidance. Now the disclosures. 
Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit vanek.com to read a prospectus before investing. Vanek ETFs are distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. And when there's a, a mini banking crisis, people guess about how much of a hike the, the, the uh, credit crunches be. Oh, well, the bank will stop lending. That's equivalent to a 25 basis well, point hike. Two, up, now right. it's 50 basis points up. It could be 100. It's, it's just people, you know, there's well, no why, way to be proven wrong. But why did people see a kind of a slowdown in lending at the end of that first quarter is because banks stepped back. Yeah. They were trying to maximize cash. And how do you do that? You throttle back lending. You let more of those loans that are coming due redeem. You stick the cash in the bank. Yes. And so I just want to ask you about hot money. I think that's um, money that goes in and out. It's not uh, It's not loyal, whereas the, the stable money is something that is, is going to stay there. Uh, what would be an example of hot money that and you said that the banks are increasingly relying on it? And you know, what, what can we, conclusions can we draw from the fact that they, they need to be tapping this hot money? Hot money, the definition of it has expanded quite a lot. It could be large high net worth investors who are putting you know, $250,000 in multiple banks using Cedars or one of these other networks. It could be business customers who now are looking to maximize yield on their on their treasury balances. So there's a whole variety of uh, different types of use cases that we didn't have a few years ago. Now everybody's looking to get paid something on their deposits. So if you're a big business customer of XYZ Regional Bank, you call your account officer to say, you know, I'm thinking about moving our payroll in the T-bills this quarter. Could you help me with that? And they go, oh, no, 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 you know, and they offer you to get to pay you 2% on your escrow balances and your payroll, right? So banks are having to become very innovative about how they retain liabilities and how they also retain the asset side of the business, right? Because you want to lend these guys money. That's the struggle all the banks are going through. And they're fighting the Treasury. They're fighting J.P. Morgan. You're idea, your thesis about how quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, the relative expansion and reduction of the Fed's balance sheet, how that's very disturbing to the commercial banking system. It's, it's, I'm still processing it and it's, you know, I feel like it's really complicated. So it would be, it'd be great to dig into that a little bit. Why is quantitative easing and quantitative tightening so disruptive to the banks? Well, quantitative easing was a way for the Fed to change investor preferences. How do you do that? You take a lot of low-risk, quote-unquote, treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities out of the market. You stick it on the Fed's balance sheet. Now, unlike a bank move, the Fed doesn't trade those balances. They don't hedge them. It just sits there sterilized, as the economist term. That puts downward pressure on interest rates because investors now have to go invest in something else, right? By definition, there is a shortage of duration. So if you look at when the Fed bought those securities back in 2021, let's say the notional amount at the top was $3 trillion in Fannie, Freddie, Ginny mortgage backs. But since they raised rates, the maturity of those securities has gone from a couple of years average life to 15 or 20 years because nobody's prepaying the mortgage. The extension of the duration of these securities, the extension of the maturity, because nobody's prepaying, right? They're just sitting there. Every month they pay interest. It forces long-term rates down. So the worry I have is that if the Fed doesn't accept that they have to be a seller now, just as they were a buyer in 2020 and 21, in order to have some symmetry 
in terms of monetary policy and how we unwind this, then long-term yields for banks are not going to rise. And eventually they're going to get crushed because the cost of funds is going to go up. We know that. But if yields on loans don't go up as well, if yields on securities like the 10-year treasury don't get up above 4%, I don't think the banks are going to have a very easy time with that, Jack, because their, their net interest margin is going to be compressed. Uh, the Fed is playing God with the bond market, and they need to understand that there has to be some symmetry in how they unwind the policy, much the way they put it together in the first place, right? They dropped target rates. They bought a lot of securities. They should tell the Fed in New York every time that 10-year gets anywhere near three and a half, sell keep selling until you get to the cap. And I don't think that's such a revolutionary idea, but apparently it's a big deal for the Fed. So, Chris, help me understand that. So when the Federal Reserve a Central Bank moves interest rates enormously in a very short period of time, 450 basis points in a year, that imposes drastic losses uh, on holders of duration yes. securities, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and those can be hedged, but if I own a lot of treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and I hedge my risk to you, I've just transferred it, the risk to you. So that's that's a whole hedging thing that we, we get into later. Of course, as you say, the mm-hmm. Fed doesn't hedge. But but no, by keeping- no, If you're holding on, something to maturity, if you're buying an asset on credit, in other words, you like the asset, you don't hedge it. Why yeah. would you? You might as well just stay in cash. <laughs> that's, Chris, okay, let's get into the hedging point now. That's, ex- I'm like- that makes no sense to me. So yeah, if you buy a 10-year treasury, oh, but I, I hedged it with a swap. So now you just have a swap spread risk. You, you know, that's- yes, But the yeah. hedge ratio for a Ginny Mae 2 is a lot higher than a 10-year treasury. Why? Because see, the Ginny Mae 2 is a little less liquid than a treasury, number one. Number two, the cash flow is all back in. So let's say you have no prepayments. You're at 6%, so for today, Nobody's prepaying their mortgage. You're getting 2% annual off of that security. Your cost of funds could be five. So by definition, these securities are underpriced. They were manipulated when the Fed created them. And, you know, keep in mind that as you raise rates on these securities and the maturities extend, the weight of them, the downward pressure they exert on interest rates in the long end of the curve is enormous. So there's no way we're going to see a normalization of policy until the Fed accepts that they're going to have to tell the Fed of New York to sell mortgage-backed securities. I think opportunistically. You don't want to be a seller when the market's retreating, Jack. But it, if they're anywhere near three, I want the desk to be selling every day. You know, They could sell cash. They could sell forwards. It's up to them. But I think the only way you normalize this market is to get that duration, $2.5 trillion in nominal face them out back to the private market. They need that paper. I thought that the problem was precisely that there was too much duration in the market because the market took too much, so, so, so much duration risk when interest rates were so low. You know, if Silicon Valley Bank, they owned over 80 billion, I think over 100 billion, but let's just say over 80 billion in, in Ginnie Mae securities, if the Fed had, had you know, dumped all those Ginnie Mae, they, they would be trading even lower. I mean, you know, this problem that you, you flagged about uh, uh, bank bank uh, uh, book value being impaired by rise of uh, high interest rates uh, on the uh, treasuries and securities, uh, mortgage-backed securities that they You're own. Right. Wouldn't that be exacerbated by by selling? Mm, a little bit, but uh, the volatility would come down because if all of a sudden 
these securities are in the market, guess what's going to happen to them? Those low coupon bonds are going to trade at a discount to the on the run paper, the fives and the sixes that we're writing today. People are going to restructure those bonds. They're going to take all those low coupon securities, they're going to strip them into an interest only principal only piece and put them away in CMOS, get rid of them. It's the commit insurance company. So that to me is an excellent outcome because then you will essentially satisfy the shortage of demand in the, or duration of the market due to excessive demand for risk-free assets. There has been since 2008. And you would think, well, gee, Chris, the deficits are huge. How can there not be enough paper out there? Because you could see it in the swap market. Mm-hmm. Now, since 2008, swaps for dollar floating fixed uh, transactions have been at a discount. The rest of the world operates at a premium. Why? Because people were hiding at dollars. They wanted risk-free assets, and they still do. So the bid for risk-free U.S. currency assets is still off the scale. That's why the Fed should be a seller. Be a seller opportunistically. Get the stuff out of there. And that, I, I think that would help a lot of the volatility we saw you know, in the first quarter, which was stunning. Right. You, you can't have a mortgage-backed security move half a point in yield every day, both directions, by the way, uh, and expect people to make money. I'm sorry. No, it's not going to happen. You cannot hedge this. You cannot model this. Right. So, so the, those agency mortgage backs, they have two, two, I mean, I'm sure they have more, many more, but let's just say interest rate risk, convexity risk, but then, then the, the spread between the, the treasuries, that sort of risk. Sure. If the Fed stops hiking and, you know, I mean, it seems like it could be the case that the Fed will do 25 basis points at next month's meeting and then they'll be done. Interest, interest rate volatility on the upside is already gone. On the downside, sure, they can cut, but there, there's if the Fed hiking cycle is over... Uh, then like then you, know, you work on that. You put that paper back in, in the market and you get rid of the volatility. That's mm-hmm. what you have to do. And Treasury, remember, they're going to be refunding. Now that the Fed's not buying paper from the Treasury, they're going to have to go out and refund these assets. So we'll have supply there too. But at least they'll have current coupons. Chris, to what degree have your fears and the fears of the market in the banking community been allayed by the fact that as interest rates have fallen and mortgage backs have rallied, bonds have rallied because there's a a bid for safety, what banks own actually has increased in value. So all these negative equity, you know, negative equity in the mark to market insolvent positions are actually looking a lot better. They're certainly looking better than the third quarter. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, again, if the 10 year trades off, if we go back to a 4% yield, you're right back in the same problem. That's why I think you'll see selling some of these banks, you know, get to the point where they don't see the 10 year going down anymore in yield, then they're going to kick out some of this paper and take the pain. Because if you could reinvest at twice the yield, it's worth your money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have the income and the capital so that the regulators aren't going to get fussy with you, do it. Kick it out there. Go buy some of the current uh, maturity paper, which is going to perform reasonably. It won't have uh, excessive prepayments. Um, but I think that, to me, is the way out of this. Otherwise, you know, we, we're, we have half a policy which is just change targets and the balance sheet. You can't do that. That's not a credible policy on the part of the Fed. Mm-hmm. So how big of an issue are the securities on the bank's books that they bought at 2%, 3% uh, treasury, all the, all the duration risk? Yeah. 
how, how worried about you are you are you that uh, right cash flow wise it's still a significant problem for the industry mm-hmm. if, if they hold on to those securities it will impair earnings for years um that's really a medium-term problem and then low credit those are the two real things coming down the road the mark to market was mostly about disclosure now that people understand the issue and they are not surprised the way they were a month ago uh, I think it's going to be far less of a concern. So remember, okay. the definition of a systemic risk is when people are surprised. You go, hello, here's a default you weren't expecting. And that really unsettled people. Um, but having said that, you know, I think people, if anything, want to go buy these stocks. I'm not sure that's a great idea, but, you know. But I still have right. a mostly preferred position. I bought some New York Community Bank. I bought some Western Alliance. Do not take me as an example, kiddies. So, yeah, nothing Nothing you say is investment advice. No, no. no but I, I'm accumulating these on a long-term basis because I like the business model. Banks are going to get punished this year. Okay, Rising interest rates, rising credit costs are bad for book value, as Dick Bovey taught me years ago. So remember that, that these stocks are unlikely to perform well as long as we're worried about credit. So until the Fed really signals we're done, and uh, maybe we could even see rates go down. A few more good inflation numbers, you know, the streets can be squawking for this, as you can imagine. I, I, I'm just trying to understand what is what has improved for the bank's equity position in terms of their book value on the, the whole, the whole, whole the majority, other, other than interest rates having gone down. What? Yeah, yeah. Well, the mark to market's less ugly. But in, in terms of their overall capital position, I think nothing has changed. They're still likely to give back equity over the next couple of years, much the same way many of them accreted new equity during 20 and 21. Give back equity back. as in their book value goes up or raise, raise new equity in the market? No, no, no. They give it back because they're going to take losses. Mm. But value goes down. You know? and, and that's natural. We had a long period where credit had no cost. In almost 10 years. So now that the Fed has stopped buying bonds and stopped forcing asset prices up, you're going to see the real cost of credit come back. We've been only waiting for 10 years. I mean, come on. Uh, how long can credit guys wait? You know, we have to have our fun too. <laughs> yeah. Because as, so, you know, w- when we spoke in, in March, we said there were a lot of banks where if they were marking their securities and loans to market based on interest rate risk, their liabilities was, would exceed the value of those assets. In other words, they would be mark-to-market insolvent. That has improved, in some cases, dramatically as interest rates have fallen over the past month. But if it was such a problem then, why, why is it not a problem now? I, I'm, because I'm just... it's less of a surprise. More people yeah. have dug into it and they understand it. And the banks have said, well, yeah, I've got a big mark-to-market position, but I still have tangible equity. And that's most banks. There are some out there that were playing games and may have been playing for an early Fed pivot and decided to go long too early. You know, the time to change from long to short duration, uh, or excuse me, let's say you were short, you wanted to go long, was the third quarter when the disclosure on that mark-to-market was really ugly. Um, That was the time to flip, but a lot of people weren't willing to do that trade. They were afraid. By the time you got to the end of the fourth quarter, it was very clear watching the 10-year that we were seeing a, kind of a short-term rally. By the time you got through February, 
even more so, right? So the mark-to-market was getting better that whole time. But then you had Silicon Valley and Signature go sideways. And that threw everything out the window. So I think since then, people have come to understand the problem and they're a little more comfortable that the Fed is going to do something like lending on securities without a haircut and that sort of thing. But it doesn't change the fundamentals, which is you still have trillions of dollars in securities and loans and commercial mortgages that were priced during 20 and 21, priced too low. Mm-hmm. And if, if you refied those assets today, they'd have twice the yield or more. Chris, now I, w- I want to bring up the issue of, of hedging, which you know, I know you have strong thoughts about it, and I do as well. Uh, people can say, oh, yes, the, Fed, the banks bought these duration securities and they have these risks, interest rate risks, but they know that and they hedge their book accordingly, their interest rate. No, what do you say? No, people love to you know, mention that word hedge and then change the subject. Um, you don't hedge an asset that you're going to keep in portfolio, what we call held to maturity. Why? Because you buy that asset on credit. You like the credit, therefore you want the asset. Why would you spend most of the coupon hedging it? You might as well just keep reserves at the Fed and send everybody home, right? Fire most of your employees, put all of your assets at the Fed and go play golf, right? So the book for health of maturity is really about credit and you want to maximize the return, which is maximize the coupon and you're not going to spend hedge, right? Um, you're available for sale book. That's different. You essentially have to hedge it. You're, you're guessing. You're trying to say, where's the tenure going to be at the end of the month? Okay. So Jack, tell us, where's the tenure going to be at the end of the month? You have no idea. Yes. Okay. So each month, each quarter, shops that have a large chunk of their assets and available for sale have to figure out the guess, how much hedge to put against that position. So it doesn't go one way or another too much. The classic example is if you're a big lender, you're short in terms of loans you want to sell in the market next month. You close the mortgages, you deliver them. That's how you make money. Hopefully the spread is positive. Same thing with security. So stuff you've been working on this month, yeehaw, the 10 years going up, the yield's going down. So the stuff you've got in pipeline, you're actually going to make more money on this month than you might have otherwise. Again, you hedge your rate risk, but you're not hedging the full economic risk of the transaction. Otherwise you might as well, you know, be selling flour. So the, you, you hedge the rate risk. You mean the interest rate risk, duration risk of the available for sale securities. It's, it's somewhat, not a hundred percent. You try and cut the ends off it because remember these are assets with cash flow that, you know, typically these are agency or government securities. So they, it's not like they're distress. You don't need to hedge a hundred percent of the economic value of the portfolio. But the lot of people who use that word, especially members of Congress, love to say the word hedge like it implies something. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. So that's that's the issue. A lot of lenders in the last year, because volatility in the market was so high, just stopped hedging entirely. As soon as they close the loan, they sell it. They don't even try and hedge their book. That's a very primitive way of working the market, but it's low risk. And given conditions today, I think it's the right choice. And I'm talking about big lenders who just have the hell with this. I can't possibly guess what this market is going to do because of the Fed. Uh, therefore, I'm going to simplify my operations. Try to sell the loans. Yeah, sell it quickly, assign the trade to another counterparty, whatever. Just get it out. 
because time is risk, remember. Mm -hmm. The longer you have that asset sitting on your book, it's all risk, and you don't know which way. Yes. There's no, there's no magic formula they send you in a, you know, an envelope every morning. <laughs> yeah. And Chris, also, correct me if I'm wrong, but bank deposits, demand deposits can be called overnight, but they often aren't. You know, many bank deposits have been there for 50 years. So even though they have the option of being called overnight, the duration is not one day. So banks assign a duration to that, mm -hmm. three years, seven years. But then when there's a bank run, uh, the duration is actually one day because everyone pulls pulls their money. So by definition, there's an there's a in, regardless of hedging in a bank well, run. In a bank right. run, there's no, there's no interest rate match. If you go back and look at Sheila Bear's book uh, Bull by the Horns, when she describes what happened to Wachovia and how the big institutional investors showed up and demanded uh, early redemption on their bonds, we're not even talking about deposits now. There was already a deposit run at that bank. Uh, and it was large institutional customers coming and saying, hey, we really would like our money back. Well, what's the duration of that? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if there's an emotional aspect to liquidity and there's a legal contractual aspect, right? The contractual aspect is I probably have a penalty if I withdraw early, okay? But if the difference in yield is bigger than the penalty, well, screw it. I'll take the penalty and just reinvest. That's where we are now. When, when uncle's paying 4% for T-bills, well, hell, what's the penalty, right? Mm. Doesn't matter. Right. And so banks can hedge their, their book, not just with swaps, but there's also mortgage servicing rights, which make, mm. you know, uh, they, they they retain value as, as interest rates go up because people aren't refining. So it can be like a, a natural. That's, that's the best way. The, the best, yeah, the ideal book is decent, portfolio of mortgages, commercial or residential, uh, and then a big servicing book so that when rates go up and volumes fall, you have cash flow. I think it's ironic that one of the highest quality cash flowing assets is attacked by the regulators, which are mortgage servicing rights. And then meanwhile, they tell everybody to buy the most dangerous securities of all, which is mortgage banks. Which is what Silicon Valley Bet Bank had, you know, yeah, so much of the book is that. And, and ponder, you know, I wrote this up in the blog, but think about 19, 20, 21, 22 for a Silicon Valley bank when they were running that big book, and half the book was prepaying every year. So they had to go buy more. In fact, they bought a lot more. And, and each time they went into the market, they were replacing securities that had prepaid. The new securities have much lower coupons and much lower duration. So by the time they get to the end of 21, the bank's dead. And they didn't know it, the bank was dead. You know, they would so much price risk on their book from the mortgage banks. Anyway. Right. Uh, Chris, let's talk a, sort of a tale of two banks with regards to duration risk and interest rate hedging. One, JP Morgan, just reported today, and the other is Bank of America. JP Morgan, despite its enormous size, parked most of its securities, and it's anecdotal, but you know, I've looked, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, in that you know, one year to five year securities, they didn't buy a ton of that you know, super long duration mortgage backed yeah. name messy things, and they they also did a lot a lot of uh, um, hedging. Bank of America hedge, and, and again, is okay. We're not saying that the large banks are not aware of these risks, but we're not saying that they are not competent in hedging them if they want to, or if it is economic for them to hedge them in the available for, for sale securities. And Bank of America did, but they had Bank of America had so much in the uh, hold to maturity held to maturity bucket over a hundred billion dollars in losses and where's the hedge chris where's the hedge 
totally different approach. Bank of America keeps everything. They have very, very secure core funding. And they're happy basically sitting with the book, not hedging a lot of it. They do hedge some of their interest rate risk. But basically, it's a very old-fashioned, almost community bank kind of model. Um, I've always, you know, as you know, had some issues with their performance and also their disclosure. Um, Jamie Dimon, you know, and think about this, the weighted average maturity for Bank of America is probably close to 20 years. JP Morgan, the weighted average maturity of their whole balance sheet is probably less than five years. Wow, so I didn't know. What that tells you is that City, JP, uh, Goldman, you know, these firms have big capital markets business, so they tend to watch duration very carefully, and they want to keep it short because it allows them to manage it effectively, right? If you're a Wells or Bank of America, though, you keep a lot of stuff on your buck, uh, and that tends to make your duration much longer. So it's it's a management choice. I don't know that, you know, it's going to be fatal for Bank of America to keep all of that uh, paper, but I think it'll hurt their earnings. It's certainly going to impair their earnings going forward. Yeah, I mean, people getting very emotional during this whole episode. You know, I posted something on Twitter about the losses about you know Bank of America had over a hundred billion dollars oh, under wow. losses on security. People accuse me of, of trying to start a bank run on Bank of America. I'm like, <laughs> the biggest bank in the world. Are you one of the biggest banks? Are you kidding me? No, well, they're my bank guy. On and, Twitter. And I, I frolic in their mediocrity. What can I say? The Bank of Brian is just endlessly amusing. Um, but you know, having said all that. You, you raised the right issue, and it's not that the bank's going to fail, no. uh, but people are very emotionally tied to the Bank of America. There are a lot of managers out there who are bound and determined that that bank should be the best performer among the top five, and the answer is not until Brennan leaves, because, you know, you can't look at their performance and say, well, this is great. It's not. U.S. Bank and JP are the leaders in the group. The next you know, benchmark after them, ironically, is the average for the top uh, 132 banks. We were mostly smaller. So think about it. Bank America, Wells, and Citi are all trading below the peer in terms of their operating performance. That's not great. You know, Brian needs to take five points off of his expenses and get down to where JP is in the low 60s in terms of efficiency ratio. And same with Wells. I, I don't think Wells is credible. You saw my note. Yeah. Until they get their operating efficiency under control. And you could say the same thing for City. City still has too much overhead. Their overhead number needs to start with a four, not a five. All right. Because look, they're half the size of JP Morgan, but they, you know, have overhead that's just outsized. That's the only way they're going to get in the game. In this market, the banks that are going to thrive and survive, frankly, are the ones with the best operating expense control that Jamie knows how to do that. Think about it. His bank is right next to the peer group for all these little banks at 59. That's pretty good for a bank. It's almost $3 trillion in assets. Yeah. When I was going through just the books on the duration, I'd seen a lot of the securities. I'm really like, you know, you've been pointing out for you know close to a year, well over a year. And when I saw JP Morgan and just how good it was on, oh, wow. They, short. Yeah. Short. Oh, super short duration. And by the way, Goldman Sachs, that, you know, they have maybe some other issues we can get into, but because they're not relying on a, you know, a huge deposit base, they issued tons of long-term paper, which declines in value, their liabilities decrease in value. Yeah, uh, but they also run a, they run a very short book. They run yes, a they do, they do, deal. Yeah. And so everything in that world is marked to market every day. Yeah, the whole maturity book is... is That's the iron. It's very small, yeah. 
Well, yeah, but the point is that the, the way they run that book is you know, net capital, the FINRA rules, New York Stock Exchange rules. That's their world. They, they are not a big money center bank that can just, you know, go, go play golf in the afternoon. No, they're a very different business. And Jamie follows that market discipline, too. That's why of all the banks, especially the top five, I would say JP and then U.S. Bank are the best at just managing duration overall. They've, they've far outperformed their, their colleagues. I believe it's the case, Chris, that Warren Buffett sold U.S. Bank, USB. Yes. What did you make of that? I think for a lot of investors, the return, the common equity returns from banks are not particularly attractive until we get a little better handle on credit in this cycle. You can't model this until you know what's going to happen with credit. So it doesn't surprise me. I, as you know, since 20, I basically climbed up the capital structure and took most of my common and turned it into preferred because I just didn't need the price risk. And we're almost getting to the point where some of the common is interesting, but I still think, you know, it's going to be a while. We've got to get through this year. We've got to see the Fed normalize policy and stop playing games with their portfolio. And then the banks have some visibility about the future. You know, that's the tough part right now. It's a big question mark as to what long-term returns are going to look like end of the year. And it's largely up to the Fed. Chris, it's been great uh, to hear your insights about the banks. Uh, people can uh, find you on Twitter at RC Whalen and where, where's, uh, people can find your, your excellent research. Where can they find that? Uh, well, yep, the institutional risk analyst and, uh, occasionally write a call for national mortgage news. If you haven't had enough, the reporting from the mortgage ghetto. So. I, I definitely have not had enough and my audience has as well. Chris, thanks again and talk soon. All right. Take care of yourself. You too. Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.